Great. Thanks so for that piece, um, Beck and Josh. Uh, it was beautiful. Uh, my name's Harry. If you haven't met me before, I'm going to be reading the Bible for us this evening. Uh, we're going to be reading from the book of John and starting at chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 18. So it'll be along on the screen, but if you have your own Bible that you prefer to follow along with, then please do that. Uh, will you read with me? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through all things, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh. No, I want to... We have seen his glory, the glory of who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. I'm just going to... I invite Jeff to come and speak to us now. And as he does, uh, I'd just like to pray for him. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through it and that it is active and alive today. Thank you for the privilege that we have to be able to hear from you and speak to you. And I pray now, Father, as Jeff comes to speak to us, uh, I pray that you'd be speaking through him. Speak uh, into our hearts, God. Help us to be receptive to what you'd have to say. And I just pray that you would be with Jeff uh, as he speaks to us this evening. Amen. Well, thank you for those prayers. And uh, uh, we pray that uh, the Lord will uh, use this time to, again, reveal something about him, himself to us all. We're beginning what I think is a uh, most marvellous book. And uh, John wants to leap straight in and so do I. <laughs> Uh, but first of all, he begins his, this, this gospel, this unique gospel. We remember that John is the one who is probably Jesus' closest earthly friend amongst the disciples. He has so much to tell from first-hand experience, but we won't understand it unless we uh, have a bit of a prologue first, and that's what this is. The trouble with John is that he's a little bit like my granddaughter. He's not very good at telling jokes. He tends to give away the punchline 
uh, well before we get to the climax. And, and that's what this is. This, this passage we're looking at tonight has been profoundly significant in the history of the church in theological debates, in resolving uh, the church's orthodoxy, and uh, we, we can't do justice to it in a small amount of time. In fact, I was saying to the morning congregation this morning, I've deliberately tended to, over the years, steer away from looking at this passage in one sermon. There's so much happening there. Nonetheless, tonight we will, and I uh, pray that God will reveal something about his inner being to us as you do it. Every one of us tonight, as we listen to this, is a theologian. That is, every one of us has a, an idea of what God is like. The trouble is that most of us, when we think of God, we think God is like us. We think of God in terms of our categories, uh, our limitations of thought. But this uh, passage begins with some things which are simply beyond us. And we have to realize that we have to believe in God as he has revealed himself rather than as we would prefer he was. God looks like this. As John assembles his plot, he assembles the characters within it. He begins by saying, as the, the old book began, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, we are monotheists. The Old Testament that John had was a monotheistic document. And yet in the light of his experience of knowing the Lord Jesus, he has to qualify that. He doesn't qualify monotheism by saying we're no longer monotheists, but he has to complicate the picture that we have of God. And he begins by speaking of God using this metaphor, the word, or as Mari said in her prayer, in the Greek, it's the logos. Now, why does he do that? Well, it's because it's a familiar word, regardless of whether the audience was more Greek or secular or more Jewish in background. The, the Greek philosophers believed that somehow or other, the wisdom of God uh, was scattered throughout the created universe. There was this thread of his wisdom or his word, the logos that uh, joined everything together it was sort of like an energy from God. And that set the semantic range. It, it sort of helped us understand what he's on about. He's on about things in the heart of God. But we also know that in the Old Testament and the scriptures, particularly in the Proverbs, the, when it was translated into Greek, the, the Hebrews translated, say, Proverbs 3, 19 and 20. The Lord, by wisdom, Logos, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. Or in Proverbs 8, 22 and following, the Lord possessed me, the Logos, at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman and so forth. There is this personification of wisdom already in the Old Testament, which probably was more about poetry and reflection of the writer of Proverbs. But now John says, actually, those writers and those philosophers spoke truer than they realized they were speaking. 
That's actually how God is. You see, God is one, but he's not a simple singularity. He is a complex being, unlike us. And we immediately think, oh, I can't get my head around that. But John says, well, just take it from me. The word was God, and yet the word was with God. God is not like us. He is a singular God that somehow or other is able to be beyond himself, to express himself, come out of himself. And when he is out of himself, he is the word. And God is the word, but God is relating to God. In other words, when we think about the Christian revelation of God, we've got to realize that God is trying to say, say to us something about his life before we're even a thought. He is a God who is mutually, and the word with is actually towards. God is into God. He is satisfied with himself. Relationship is essential to God. That's why we're relational beings. He's not relational because we are and we need someone to love us. He is, before we're even a thought, he is mutually focused upon himself. And it's a mutual thing. So when we speak of monotheism, we've got to realize that we're speaking biblically about a complex one, a complex monotheism, not a simple, unknowable being somehow out there beyond our comprehension. Well, that's the initial era, God's era. But then he moves into the era of creation or the era of goodness in verses three and four. And he says, and I hope you have the scriptures in front of you there to make it a lot easier. He says, all things were made through him. And just to make sure we are listening. And without him was not anything made that was made. Like the word is the brackets inside which is creation. He's not part of creation. Many people look at creation materialistically and they say, well, there's no sign of God here. Well, what did you expect? He's not part of creation. However, he says something profound in the next verse. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So even though we're in the era of goodness, creation is not essential. But God so, happened, so designed us that when we look at this vital living thing called the cosmos, teeming with life, full of vitality, in intricate ways and majestic ways, from the smallest microbe to the, the, the largest being, we see that God has made this world in such a way that it will cause us to look upwards. The way God designed us and designed the world was so that when he, out of his infinite satisfaction in his own life, pulled back the curtains and he made a space to make this little snow dome called the universe. And he decided that out of his satisfaction with himself, out of the abundance of his generosity, he would make certain sort of creatures, you and I, only the humans, who would have the capacity to look at nature and worship the maker. Nature itself was not God. 
but effectively nature was the cathedral that God made, so it would be compulsive for us to worship. We read about that in the great Psalms of creation, Psalm 19, for instance. You know this one, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. You've heard this, I'm sure. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Actually, there is no speech per se, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. God has made nature so it's like an amplification system that points sentient beings, ourselves, upwards to God demands a fascination with the transcendent. That's the nature of our God. Worship is part and parcel of God's life, and he's made us so worship is essential to being human. That's the tragedy of the non-believer. They don't know their reason for being here. Worship is essential to us. Then he quickly moves into verse 5, and having just dropped on us some profound ideas, John says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Isn't that an incredible thing? He just makes the point. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't deal with it now. But there is something perverse in the cosmos. There is an antipathy to this generosity. Darkness. Somehow it's immoral. It's not essential to creation because it's not essential to God. But it is an intrusive thing and it attempts to snuff out the light, to dampen the interest in God, in sentient beings like you and me. My sister, um, who's a, a, a bit of a, an academic um, par excellence. She's an anthropologist. In a former life, she is an ethnomusicologist. And one of her earliest pieces of research was to go to the Southern Highlands province of Papua New Guinea to the Huli Nation. She had to learn their language and, and she discovered an interesting thing by virtue of being both a linguist and an ethnomusicologist. She was able to discover that through the instruments that they play, like jaws harps, jaws harps and panpipes, sort of didgeridoo type instruments, they can actually transmit their language through their music. They are far more sophisticated than our uh, humble 3444 four, four musicians uh, that we have today. They can speak through instruments. And the way they've captured their history, she discovered when she taped it and played it back really slow, she discovered that they had all their, what we would call the dream time, the, the history of the legends that have gone before, leading backwards in time. And when you get to the first verse, it's fascinating. She was blown away when she translated their creation story, where in their history they recall a time, not a mythological time, not full of totems and what have you. This is a time when their forefathers made a decision. And in that day, the cloud of God used to be with them and would come down a presence, a glorious cloud every day, and would, would drop from the cloud a present wrapped in, in, in great big green jungle leaves. 
And every day God would bless this people, bless and bless. And they'd go out and they'd, the tribe would collect their gift from God day by day until one day they began to become a little bit blasé. They became a little bored with God and they lost the response of gratitude. And so one day God came and the people decided, oh, he'll drop something. He always does. And instead of responding in worship, they let the present fall to the ground. In their dream time, they tell the story of a snake who came and took the present and ran off with it. And then the next day, they waited for God's present. He dropped this present wrapped in leaves and they opened up the present and they found within it rotting flesh, a picture of death. And God spoke to them and he said, you could have had eternal life. But instead, you chose death. And the cloud drew away. Now, this people have then made the choice when certain spirit beings came along that instead of worshipping God, the one God, they would transact and go into covenant with evil spirits, powerful spirits who would promise magic, would promise insight and visions, would promise power and pigs, power over the tribe next door, or more wives or a happy life. And they went in with the spirits and from those days they chose darkness. That could have been the end of the holy story and we'll come back to that story a little later. So here there is no explanation except something in the heart of God, man that transacts in a perverse way against God and for evil. But then God says, well, that could be the last word. We should finish this little experiment here. It's been a bit of a failure. These humans I've made are impudent and ungrateful. Maybe we'll wrap it up at this point. But God deliberately keeps on coming in to the life that we and I live. And in verse 6, we have this abrupt entrance where we read there was a man sent from God whose name was John. We're talking about John the Baptist here. And he came as a witness to do what? To bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. Now, he was not the light, right? He wasn't the source of his own revelation. But he came to bear witness about the light. We've shifted metaphor from the word to the light, but we're talking about the same one. We're talking about the God who speaks, who enlightens, who reveals, who reveals God. And here we see that man's darkness did not shut up God. He didn't just pull the cloud away and move on. But he decided to speak not just through nature, but more explicitly through the mouth of prophets, Right through the Old Testament, you read about these men set apart from God, as well as other mysterious figures. God is a speaking God. He is the word. He is the communication of God. It's in his nature to communicate because he wants to relate to these special beings, you and I. And so we introduce John because John is going to get John the writer is going to get back to John the Baptist very soon, so we needed to have introduced you to him. 
But then we go back to the story where we were in verses 9. 9 and 10, 11 and 12, we read these words. The true light, remember we're talking about revelation here, whether through the prophets or whether through nature. The true light, which gives light to everyone, is not a person who doesn't have a witness to the existence of God, folks. People cannot meet God the day they face him and say, you never told me you were there. He has been speaking forever and ever and ever. He's been belting his head against our door, basically. And God, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, as he always does. But here is the response. It's typical. He was in the world. The world was made through him. You know, it had his key signature written on it, and yet the world did not know him. Crazy, is it not? That's dullness of mind and eye. And, and as if that wasn't bad enough, he, he then set apart a special people that he related specially through special revelation, through the, the, the liberation of Egypt. We're talking about Israel. They were his own people. They made a covenant in the desert. He gave them a liberation and then he gave them the land and freedom from their enemies on all sides, a land that was generous and flowing with milk and honey. And then he gave them the law. He gave them a cultic way that they could get right with him when they blotted their copybook. He gave them the law to taught them how to walk in a way that was godly and in fellowship with him. And you'd think with all that that they would be grateful to be God's people, specific people, chosen people. He came to his own but his own did not receive him. Now, at that point, I would think if God is a just God, and that's all we know about him, then quid pro quo, we should wrap up the Israel experiment right there. You and I would not be here tonight if he had done that, but it would be a fair thing. Imagine giving and giving and giving. Imagine buying your child the best Christmas present, presenting it to them on Christmas Day. They take it and they slam the door in your face. You would say, I bet, well, I'm not going to do that again. But the light keeps on coming. He cannot be put off the ball. He cannot be put off the mark. He keeps on coming to his own, even though they did not receive him. And it doesn't change his heart plan one iota, that there should be some race of people who will have a parallel experience of infinite and eternal love, just like the Father and himself in glory before the world began. That plan has not been quenched in the least. He continues to come. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that is his real identity, he gave the right to become the children of God. What an incredible thing. He doesn't just give these people, those who believe in him. You notice that the children of God is not everyone. It's those who believe in his name. Do not believe the modern fallacy, theological fallacy, that all people will one day be saved. The right goes to the children only, to those who believe in his name. Critical, we see that. That is a status gift. Not only are we people who are his creatures, 
his handiwork, but he now brings us into a family fold where we have status, and we'll find out later just how high that status is. A positional thing with God. We, we cannot become unborn. We're made and we're put in his family tree and into his will. That's the nature of becoming a child of God. You see, tonight as we sit here, your core identity, the fundamental, as far as God is concerned, as far as the universe is concerned, on the widest framework, your core identity is a child of God. It's not your taste in football field, football teams. It's not how many languages you speak or where you grew up or what the religion of your parents and grandparents was. Your identity, if you put your hand life into Christ's hands, is you regard yourself and you should regard yourself as a child of God and nothing less. He says, how did these become children of God? John says, they were born. You know, only God can give birth to God's own children. They were born not of blood, that is, bloodlines. It's not a hereditary thing. You're not, you don't become a Christian because, you know, Uncle Bill was a priest or, you know, was a religious fanatic. That won't cut it. Nor of the will of the flesh. It's not because it's something constitutional inside you nor of the will of man. It's not your brilliance. You didn't deduce the existence of God and then work your way up to him. You can't deduce your way into something organic as a birth. It's a different paradigm. God says they are born of God. John says you were born of God. In other words, your spiritual birth was a miracle. It was a direct intervention of God. Now, that is the good news when we live in this world of darkness, that it doesn't matter how, how much indoctrination the education system puts into the heads of our children, really, because all of us, all of us who have become Christians, all of us who've become children of God, and all of us who will become children of God, do it because of direct encounter with God himself, the word who speaks to us, the light who gives us life the one who is a source of life and gives us eternal life. That is how we are. We are a miracle, each one of us who professes Christ. I liken my prayer life to, to think at times when my prayer life's getting a little sour, I'll be watching Q&A or something like that and getting all head up under the collar. And then I think, my goodness, that uh, person who's so antagonistic to the Christian worldview is sitting a little close to the fire. Wouldn't it be glorious to see the miracle of spiritual birth happen in their life? And I pray, I make sure in my prayer list, I've always got a couple of people who, in my eyes, are two hard cases. They're just beyond reclamation. But you see, all of us are two hard cases. We were children of darkness. It's not innate in us, he's saying. You cannot crawl your way to heaven. By your own brilliance. God comes to you. That is the fundamental Christian message. The light shines in the darkness. And John could have finished his little message there, but he's just, he's just hit his straps. He's in a roll. And he he says, you know, just, just did you see what I just said? 
And he says, the word became flesh. Now, the Greek philosophers would never have said that. It is a slap in the face to Plato. The creaturely world was what you tried to get away from and through contemplation, the contemplative tradition came out of Greek philosophy. We try and think our way back to God and discover the divine spark within. And, you know, but, you know, God, he had spoken through creation itself, through nature, the cathedral of God. He had then spoken through the prophets, one after the other, right up until the last one, which was John, the, the forerunner to this one, to the word who, though he was the eternal and lived beyond the realms that we could ever conceive, or we cannot conceive of what God's house is like. But that one decides, though he made this material world, to step into that ether and come in as the creature. And Chalmers says, what incredible condescension that is for the infinite one to come and take on the form of a creature, flesh and blood. But that's how determined he is. That you and I will have a parallel experience to the infinite love of God for God. So, he dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory as of the only son. Where do you get that language from? I've just been reading the book of Exodus in my quiet times, and the last passage in Exodus is where they've just built the tabernacle. And in that, we read that the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, fills the tabernacle. And Moses, the prophet of God, is not allowed in there anymore. He cannot approach the glory of God. And you see, that's the nature of it. We, we, we are sinful and finite in the presence of infinite holiness. And that infinite holiness was not diluted in the least when God stepped into this world. He was full of grace and the utterance of God, the truth of God, the word of God, was there for all to see, undiluted, without any excuse, without any explanation. He just rocked up. And John, this is why John the Baptist was so stunned, and, and people could sense this intensity about John. Like, the guy, when he finally saw his biological cousin come into his glorious ministry, he used to point to people and say, look, this is the one I was telling you about all the way along. Just shut up. Finish your conversation. He's the one you've got to listen to. I've been telling you about it. This is the one who predated me. And John knew that this was the pre-existent logos, the word of God, who came to speak God to humanity. All prophets are over at that time. Their ministry is complete when the completion steps in, when the author steps into the world. And that's why he says, from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. Each time God speaks, grace surpasses the former grace. For instance, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. That was pretty good. That was grace. That was articulate. That was better than nature, but that's been superseded too. Grace upon grace, because grace and truth, the very definition 
of abundance, of undeserved beneficence. And the very speech of God himself, without any static, that one came through Jesus Christ. You see, that's the Christian claim. The Christian claim is not come and join our ideological group, come and take up our cause, join our church. That's not the Christian message. The Christian message is that Jesus Christ is the infinite God. He has stepped into our life to speak, to claim, to call, to make us his own, to give us the experience that he has in eternity. And despite our, our impudence, he keeps on coming. Age by age, day by day. No one has ever seen this God. But the only God, there's only one, who was at the Father's side, this Jesus makes him known. I began by telling you a little bit about God making himself known in a sad way to the holy nation in the southern highlands province of Papua New Guinea. Who knows when, but way back. But in our day, in recent times, we don't know exactly the year because these folk, until the coming of the West, didn't keep calendars like us. But they, after the Second World War, they were living completely in darkness under the bondage of the totemic spirits and the ancestors that had plagued them for years. Uh, they, they lived in absolute fear. Their, their psychological condition was uh, very negative. And there's one particular fellow that I must tell you about who was probably the darkest of the lot. He was a particular tribal spirit man. Uh, I can't pronounce his name. Uh, my family have met him. I haven't. I've only seen slides, missionary slides of this man. Uh, but we'll call him Mendy for short. And now, he was a, a man who was what you'd call a wizard in our language. And he, he was uh, like an intermediary between the spirit world and, and people. People could pay him money or sacrifice pigs and uh, give him gifts, and he would do them a favour, and he would curse or bless another person. He was very powerful, had powerful magic. And uh, the cost of this was that frequently he would go to bed at night, and, and in the middle of the night, the spirit beings would wake him up and give him his marching orders, and he'd have to march to another tribe and, and curse them, and they'd be hit with a plague. Or go to another place and... Uh, uh, he would have special knowledge of something that had happened in that tribe and, and it would be warfare against that person and they'd be slaughtered in their sleep. That's a powerful man and people were very scared of him. Trouble is, with that sort of life, it was driving him crazy. He was a total insomniac. He never slept. He never rested. He never had any peace. And one day he was on a spiritual errand for one of his overlords and he was walking through the forest and he came to a... Uh, along the track and unfortunately a massive tree had fallen down with the rain across the track and he had to straddle this great big tree. I don't know what sort of tree they are in, in the Southern Highlands. But this is a very dark nation that has not been, had not until recently been contacted by Western people like you and I at all. They've been living this way since Stone Age. He hopped up onto this tree and was straddling over it and then looked up as he, 
and down the end of the tree was a being of light sitting there. In his nighttime, this fellow had been saying to himself, he thought, oh, if there was some way I could get out of this, this entrapment. If only there was some way. And has he said that? Those words rattled across the cosmos and they were picked up by one who was determined to give him his freedom. And this day, this being sits on the same log and says these words to him, Mendy, if you really want to get out of here and you mean what you say, then the word of light is coming. And when it comes, you must grab hold of it because it is the last chance you have of freedom. And then the being vanished. He was petrified. He had never seen a spirit being like that. He went about his business wondering what this word of light was. In the late 50s, non-denominational missionaries in the early 60s as well, waves of these Australian country boys, my own uncle being one of them, came into that province, befriended this tribe, tried to learn their language as simply as they could, and they discovered a fascinating thing. They discovered that this people had no synonym in their language for gospel. No synonym for good news. No synonym for hope. They were living in the darkness. And so the missionaries decided we'll have to make up some phrase. And so they came from tribe to tribe trying to tell the gospel. And they said, we want to tell you the word of the day Mendy heard that phrase, he took it with both hands. And he became a spokesman for the Logos, for the word of God. And around the time of his death, it's no accident that this dark one was transformed into an angel of light. And that nation was per capita the most densely Christian nation upon this planet in our era. Why is that? Why does this happen? Well, it's because John was right. This story is true. It's because we have a God who is undeterred. We have a God who is unrelenting. And he has a plan that you and I and the people you study with and the people you work with will have the light regardless of the, the evil schemes of darkness. I'm astounded sometimes, though, I come across Christians who somehow think mission is passe, that somehow we've got better things to do, that we should just respect these dark cultures that we should respect the fact that uh, K 
cannibalism is part of it. It's part of their religious religion, that when their children cry, they think that's of the spirits and they roll their babies into the fire night by night. Let them have their own religion. Who are we to tell them any other? But that is not Christ's way. Christ's way is unrelenting. Christ's way is light. Christ's way is life-giving. Who are we to say the light has come all the way to us in our day, in our time, in our experience, but this is where the chapter ends? Christ is still coming. The light is on the way. He is seeking. Where there is one more dark valley, the light will keep on coming. Where there is one more closed mind, the world the word will make them hear. Where there is no love, the sun will embrace them with the love of the Father. Folks, we've been caught up in something which is far beyond what we deserve. Far beyond what we can comprehend. Let's finish with that last verse. And we can say this as our benediction. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is right from the Father's side. He has made him known. We know so much more about God. He is more than just one. He is more than just simple singularity. He is grace and truth itself. That's the complexity that Jesus brings. Let's pray. Our Lord, in the quietness of this point of time in history, we ourselves are riveted by your word. Because you're the God who still speaks, we simply want to say, Lord, we know that you know all about us. We know that our response to you is disproportionately ungrateful given the great privilege we have to be called sons and daughters of God and that we are. So, Lord, all we want to say to you tonight in this quiet moment is that you have us. You have our attention, you have our wills, and please take our lives afresh. For the sake of your grace and truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.